everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So as a consumer-facing application, you always know that you've made it when your company name becomes a verb. Whether we're saying, let me Google that, or I'll Venmo you, or let's lift, there have been a special few apps that have fundamentally changed how we interact with the world and resultantly have entered our vernacular. One of those apps is Shazam. So that is why I am very excited to announce Chris Barden, the founder of Shazam, as today's podcast guest. Chris founded Shazam all the way back in 1999, before any of us had any idea what a smartphone was. And he's since helped lead the app to over 1 billion downloads with over 30 billion songs identified on the platform. So in today's episode, Chris and I discuss how he and his team solved an incredibly complex technical problem of parsing through billions of songs, despite the limitations in infrastructure and hardware that they face over the past two decades. We'll also dive into Chris's reflections on selling Shazam to Apple last year for $400 million and what recurring patterns he observes over the most successful consumer applications. So why don't we get started? Hey, Chris, how's it going? It's going well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Excited to have a conversation today. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. No problem. Well, great. Why don't we start off with a little bit about you and why you decided to found Shazam? So often people don't realize that Shazam is quite a dated company. So this is back 18 years ago in or actually late 1999. And I was doing my MBA at Berkeley. And I just realized, gosh, you know, I think, I think what I really want to do is start a company. And so I kind of went into this sort of brainstorming mode and along with a couple other people who we decided would be co-founders together. And after lots of brainstorming, it seemed like the Shazam idea was the one that we were most excited about. So that's really the inspiration. So you started Shazam as a business-focused co-founder. How did you go about finding a technical co-founder who could actually build the underlying Shazam technology? especially 18 years ago when the technology infrastructure was just nowhere near what it is today. Yeah. So obviously the idea that we had at the time, which is everyone's familiar or anyone who's a Shazam user is familiar with, was basically that if we can identify music using the ambient sound that's collected from your mobile phone, and then basically just kind of run pattern recognition technology against that and identify what song there is that's playing. And regardless of the fact that there's many technical challenges that we are facing due to the quality of the sound, so background noises, but also the changing the speed of the music, the lower quality of the music that was captured over a mobile phone and so on. So what we did is we started off thinking, okay, well, we need clearly a technical co-founder to help us tackle this problem and so we started reaching out to PhDs in audio signal processing, so electrical engineering, computer science PhDs that had specialized in audio signal processing. And we uh, walked the hallways of Stanford and Berkeley and reached out to MIT Media Lab and actually found quite a few people who were, who were published in this area and have, had quite a few conversations. But what we quickly learned was that this technology, not only did it not exist yet to solve this particular problem, but actually most of the folks we talked to felt like it was actually impossible or they couldn't think of a specific way to solve it. So we soon realized what we really need to do is find a technical co-founder 
who is not just someone that can actually build the technology, but someone who can truly innovate and invent technology that is considered infeasible at the time. And we really focused on people that would be deeply theoretical. And uh, in fact, the co-founder that ended up joining, Avery Wang, had four degrees from Stanford in audio signal processing, but also in mathematics and statistics. So he's well-equipped to kind of take a really deeply theoretical approach to solving this problem, even though he didn't know how to solve it at the time he joined as our co-founder. And as I think about mobile technology and some of the technical limitations you faced, like poor microphone quality and lack of data availability, how did you evolve the product over time to bridge the functional gaps in technology and infrastructure? Yes, I would say there were kind of two parallel developments over time for the technology. There were developments of the core algorithm. And so we would continue to invest in research and development to advance the core algorithm primarily to achieve two things. One is to make it more and more robust against the various challenges that you just mentioned, including noise. And then the second parallel set of developments was in the actual technology that created a sort of user experience. And those were basically where, you know, developments that were really necessary to stay on pace with the way that the mobile world was changing. So for the latter one, you know, when we launched there were, this, we were way before smartphones. We launched our products in 2002. And so most people had Nokia or Ericsson phones at the time. And these were just phones that had small black and white monochrome screens with something like 74 by 84 pixels might be a, a standard phone. And uh, they did, were not on 3G networks. So there was no streaming music, no color screens, no ability to show album art, no apps of any type. And so the way we launched our service at the time was build our first technologies that we built on the user experience side was actually interactive voice response or IVR systems that would answer phone calls when people dialed in and then uh, integration with the text messaging systems used by mobile operators. So basically user experiences that someone would dial a phone number on their phone, a unique four digit number that we had for Shazam, and then they would just simply hold their phone in the air for about 20 seconds. And then we would terminate the phone call and we'd send a text message back to the phone with the name of the song and artist. And then we used premium SMS if we were successful in identifying the song. That was our business model because, again, there was no ability to sell music or put advertisements in text messages or anything else that could make money. And so that developed, obviously, over time into the very first versions of apps, which were way before the iPhone, known as Java apps and Brew apps on different types of phones and some Symbian apps. And then finally evolved in this kind of third major stage with the advent of the smartphone with the iPhone App Store launched in 2008 and quickly followed by Android. We focused very heavily on the whole app experience on iPhone and Android. And obviously then the doors really opened to creating really rich user experiences that included, again, the album cover and previews of music, downloading music, streaming music, showing lyrics and doing lots of other things that really created a, a wonderful, rich experience for users. So that was the user experience development. And as I mentioned, all that time, we continued to tackle more and more things, the algorithm that would make it more robust, but also much more computationally efficient. So we could scale and scale and scale to much larger numbers of users simultaneously using Shazam, as well as very large database of songs that we would check against for every user. Yeah. And I can venture to say that Shazam is fairly omnipresent in my and my friends' lives at this point where any night out you're likely to find one of us sticking our phone in the air at some random bar looking like an idiot just to get a name of a song. 
<laughs> so it's been really fun to watch Zam's growth. And with that, one thing that you mentioned there was business model, where I think it's worth bifurcating that it's one thing to build a widely distributed and popular app. And it's an entirely different accomplishment to run a profitable business on top of that app. So you had mentioned briefly this model of leveraging premium SMS charges. Could you speak more towards how Shazam's revenue model has actually changed over time? Yeah. Again, I think we definitely evolved through different cycles on the revenue model. But as I mentioned, they have the original revenue model, which was really our only choice for a revenue model at launch, was this one of using essentially a premium charge to your phone. End up on your phone bill. It was about 50 pence in the UK, which was our first market. So it's pretty comparable to using something like directory inquiries or 411 for getting uh, someone's phone number, which people paid for at the time. Then later, I think our first foray outside of that as a revenue model was some of the early phones that supported Java apps. And for example, we had a partnership with AT&T where we created a Java app version of Shazam and AT&T would give brand new users of their phones sort of a trial period followed by the opportunity to subscribe for $2.99 a month, $3 a month approximately, to do unlimited spamming if they had that phone and that app. So that became a nice recurring subscription model for Shazam. Obviously not at the scale that we later reached, but definitely a new model for Shazam that I felt like opened the gates for more usage from users without having to feel like they would just rack up massive charges if they kept using Shazam. I guess in parallel with that, we actually built a B2B business. I so said where we monitored the hundreds or even thousands of radio stations and identify what songs were playing on them. And that was for the purposes of royalty societies that were our B2B partners. And then again, our next stage was with the advent of the smartphone. We had a model where we would drive significant music sales. In fact, we became the largest affiliate of Apple iTunes. And we drove over $300 million a year of iTunes purchases, people buying songs and albums directly from the Shazam app. So that brought in a revenue stream from various music partners, including Apple, as well as other ones on Android and so on. And then we started to build, as our most recent stage of business model, an advertising business. And we invested heavily in that, including advertisements within the Shazam experience you know, some banner ads and takeover ads and so on. But also we built a quite innovative model where we basically enabled Shazam to become a form of interaction with advertisements. There were actually television advertisements that said you can Shazam this commercial and you would users would be able to Shazam a television commercial much like they Shazam a song if they wanted to have if they had more interest in that particular product. So for example with Jag the car manufacturer you could Shazam their TV commercial, and then you could immediately enter into a three-dimensional view of the car and, and find out more information, order a test drive, and so on. So we did that type of thing with many large advertisers, both in the United States and Europe and Australia. And advertising eventually grew to be our largest revenue stream. So in order to build out the algorithm and requisite tech infrastructure to deliver the Shazam experience to millions of users at the same time and parse billions of songs you had to invest a significant amount into R&D, which I would assume makes it difficult to run a profitable and sustainable business model with the company in the midst of still searching for the best revenue model for the app. And that all ultimately led to a few speed bumps along the way. Could you talk about some of the lessons that you learned from those early struggles? 
Yeah, um, we have definitely particularly struggled with sort of having enough funding in the company and enough, whether it was from revenue or from institutional investors in those early years. So our first venture round was 2001. And I would say in the years between that round and, well, frankly, probably all the way through to when we sort of hit our hockey stick of growth, which beginning with the App Store in 2008, um, that whole period was a pretty challenging period where we had to remain very lean. And I would say that it really kind of sets in stone just how important finding early revenue is for a startup. That's something that I didn't fully appreciate as an entrepreneur. For us, we were fortunate because we did find some revenue that we had not originally planned for, as I mentioned, from the B2B business. And that ended up being very important to survival of the company for that extended period of time that it took before we were driving meaningful revenue on the consumer side of the business. One of the learnings for me is I think it's important to be thinking through an alternative way of, you know, or really thinking outside the box, how can you start to bring in revenue early on, no matter what it takes, even if it means building things that aren't necessarily a perfect fit with what your original vision or passion is, but thinking of it as sort of oxygen supply that allows you to keep on developing towards your ultimate vision. Yeah, I think it's important to be thinking that way as an entrepreneur very early on because you will want to achieve revenue as soon as possible as your source of survival. Fortunately, over time, the business continued to grow after that hockey sick moment. And about a year ago or so, Shazam announced that it had sold itself to Apple. So if you could talk a little bit about the background and why that makes strategic sense for both Apple and Shazam, we'd love to hear. First of all, I'm absolutely delighted to see Shazam end up with a new home in such an amazing company. So kind of focused on delightful experiences for users. I think it's a really natural fit for the Shazam experience to fit with a company that's one of the top leaders in the world for digital music experiences. And Shazam is, I think, it's essentially complementary to a streaming music service because ultimately one of the most important aspects of a successful streaming music service is uh, the discovery aspect. Ultimately, usually the price point for most of these streaming music services is pretty much the same, regardless of which service a user picks. Usually you see $9.99 a month as the monthly subscription, but discovery of which songs you want to actually listen to is, as I said, is sort of really core to keeping users engaged and engagement obviously is going to be correlated to the ongoing loyalty to any kind of recurring subscription service. I think essentially discovery of music can happen in many ways. It can happen through recommendations from people you know, recommendations from people that are sort of content experts. It can come from playlists and so on. But another major area that it can come from is life experience. Just, you know, and we go through life and we hear music as part of living life. And that happens in many different environments. It can happen in the real world, in a club or a bar or a cafe. It can happen in grocery stores, clothing stores, laundromats, friends' houses, driving in your car, listening to the radio. So many different places. And so I think Shazam is really specialized in helping people discover the music that's found them and therefore can be beautifully integrated with the streaming music service. I think that's probably one of the great opportunities that the Apple saw in Shazam. Yeah, we are so inundated by content in today's day and age that when we actually do find something that piques our interest, it's of the utmost importance that we can actually seek that content out, which Shazam provides for us with music. And I can see how that fits really well within the Apple Music ecosystem as that whole discovery functionality. 
So as investors, though, we're constantly hoping to find the next great asset to sell to a strategic like Apple. I'm curious, were there any specific aspects about Shazam that helped you maximize your transaction price and convince Apple to pay a premium? That's a great question. I think that one obvious thing that any company who wants to be bought, you know, needs to be thinking about, obviously, is revenue. And then we definitely kind of built, invested heavily in building diversified set of revenue streams that I spoke about. But some of the other things that I think Shazam particularly shined at was building a user base and a brand that really associated with delightful experience. So Shazam would consistently get the highest rankings of apps that you could find in the App Store, even among peers of who are some of the leading apps in terms of download numbers, so that we're very heavily focused on creating an app experience that was extremely fast. And we invested a lot of technology development around speed and, and to make the app experience extremely fast. And then we ingesting huge amounts of music fingerprints so that users could identify even the most obscure music in locations all over the world with from many different countries and cultures. And we focused on building sort of experiences related to music recognition, like such as finding out lyrics from songs and so on, so that you had a nice complimentary experience after identifying music. So ultimately, Shazam built up a brand and a user base that I think were really, really delighted by the Shazam experience. And the Shazam brand became so well known that, you know, some people said it became like a verb. And so I think that, which led to just consistent organic growth of users that didn't really require significant marketing investment and really just resulted from excellent product. I think that became one of the things that really was most valuable about Shazam, that large user base and that, that delightful brand. And when I think about whether or not someone has made it as a consumer app, it's funny that you mentioned the whole term of becoming a verb, right? It's let's Shazam this. Oh, I'll send you a Venmo. Oh, let's Uber or let's Lyft or let me Google that, right? That's to me is the defining aspect of whether or not a consumer app has really changed the status quo. But beyond that, with Shazam, the underlying technology is pattern recognition. And as you know, the name of this podcast is pattern recognition as well. I'm curious, what are some recurring patterns that you've seen across successful consumer apps? I often see, you know, one core use case, extremely compelling and extremely well designed as the focus on that one use case as being one core aspect of success. So obviously Uber for just immediately recognizing exactly where you are so you could immediately order a car and have it be picked up and know exactly how much you're paying. And so again, just focusing so heavily on that use case of I just need to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible and as reasonable price as possible. Again, like that laser focus on that and not getting too distracted on investing in lots of frills that didn't achieve that really core mission. So I think that you see that a lot, and even Pandora, you know, an incredibly successful app that had an astronomical number of users downloads in the markets where it's available, which is really just the U.S. and Australia. And again, just an incredibly sort of hyper simple experience that where they focus so heavily on all the things that enable an immediate music listening experience that was sort of frictionless. But most importantly, again, in those early days, a differentiator for them was just being incredibly reliable and not having dropouts regardless of what your mobile bandwidth might look like. And so you can just immediately step into a listening experience by starting by naming a specific artist or song that you liked. I think that that's really the commonality I see is for many of these companies identifying what is the killer app, as they say, the kind of killer experience that 
is really going to be meaningful to a very large number of users. And then innovate technically and, and just kind of laser focus on solving that specific thing so that they have the most delightful experience around solving that one particular problem. That's great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for the time. It's been a ton of fun learning a little bit more about Shazam and your founding story. Thank you. It was nice to chat. Once again, a big thank you to Chris for joining us today. I actually Shazammed my last episode, but unfortunately the app told me that there was no result. So I'll definitely make sure to get my voice catalog. But as always, if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you gave a quick rating and review, as well as sent any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heezy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y, or on Instagram at John Jihu, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.